Our scripture reading today will be from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through, th verses 1 through 3, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Those can be found in your Red Pew Bible in the back on pages 245 and 260. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruits each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the questions came in a variety of ways. What's, a, what's the book of Revelation mean? Are we really in the end times? How many will be saved? Who's the beast? Who's the Antichrist? Why in the world they put it in the Bible anyway? And on and on those questions exist. So today we're going to talk about those for a little bit. I'm going to invite you to begin with me with a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, we ask that we would have a revelation today, that we would uh, have a gift from you of insight to your truth, to your power, and to your movement in our lives, in this community, in the world. So guide us and speak to us, speak through us, and allow this day to be a day of both discernment and celebration to realize that your revelation is being made known. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Growing up on the farm, I, uh, I really didn't have much appreciation or understanding of art. Uh, my evaluation of a good piece of art was whether the apple looked like an apple. It wasn't really until I got to college and I took one of those intensive uh, three-week seminars uh, on uh, religious symbolism and art. And in those three weeks, we traveled to the Chicago and Toledo Museum of Arts and went to the DIA and spent time taking a hard look at the art that was before us to understand its meaning. It was in that class I began to realize that art is something a great deal more than just a depiction of the world that I see. I began to understand that in art... There's a story behind the art. There's a story in the art that is reflected oftentimes very graphically by that which you see and symbolically by that which you see. And some of the things that you see in art actually are key to the meaning to the painting or sculpture, for example, that you don't know unless you understand what that symbolism is about. 
And I also began to discover that art is rather subjective. Whether I like a piece of art or you like a piece of art is not simply dependent upon the work of art itself. It's somewhat dependent upon how we react to it, how we respond to it. So, for example, let's take a look at some art. Now, when I was younger, I would have said, this is great art. Why? Because it looked like my grandmother. It looked like our Thanksgiving table. It looked like life as I knew it growing up in Montrose. And so I'm thinking Norman Rockwell, um, in a land of plenty, did a fantastic job of art. But then I got exposed to other kinds of art. And I thought, what's wrong with this guy? And I didn't understand why Picasso would get such a, such a sense people thought he was really good when he couldn't even draw a straight line. And in this weeping woman painting, I began to think, well, <laughs> where is she? And then I began later to understand that art is also about emotion. And while I don't see the woman's face very clearly here, I finally got to the place in my life where the grief and pain was so deep it poured out of me. And I began to realize that's how it can feel when you're weeping so deeply. I began to appreciate it a lot more. The Head of Christ by Rembrandt, a classic. I began to look at it and begin to reflect on it. And does it bring you peace? Is it a thing that you could use in your prayer life to, to talk to Christ? Is it would be helpful to you? Maybe yes, maybe no. There isn't a right or wrong answer to that. And Monet's painting, The Impressionist, I love. And also, when I first began to look at it, I thought, wait a minute, it's all squiggly. It's, not, it's just a bunch of dots. And then I began to realize, well, that's what Impressionists are. They, they both reflect the world as we see it, sort of, but there's always that shimmer, that glimmer, that, that less-than-perfect depiction of reality because there's always something more behind it. These are all great pieces of art. They're all considered classics, and they're all very different, and each one of you would like one more than the other. Let's try that. How many of you like the Rockwell most of these four? Norman Rockwell. We've got some Rockwell fans. Uh, how many of you like Picasso's piece the most? A few of you. How many of you like Rembrandt's Head of Christ? Okay, a few of you. How many of you like Monet's? Wow. Okay, Monet rocks in this church. That's cool. Very good to know. Now, I, I also came to discover that art, obviously, is far more than just paintings. There are other expressions of art, too. And all of them, in the same way, have different parts about them that draw out of us a particular kind of response. It can happen in music. Here's the thing. They're all great songs. But you respond to one more than the other. Why? I don't know. Because it touches something within you, because you react to it, you respond to it, you relate to it. I don't know. But there's some songs you like, some songs you don't. There's some art you like, some that you don't. And in the same way, you and I respond to Scripture oftentimes at a very visceral level. Let me give you an example. My guess is, if any of you have been reading in your Bible lately, there's a better chance you've been reading Luke than Leviticus. Just a guess. Okay? 
That would be my guess. Some of you prefer reading the Apostle Paul. Some of you like staying just with the Gospels. Let me try this. Most of you don't particularly like reading the book of Revelation a lot. Or haven't. Am I close? And I'm going to tell you the two reasons I think that's true. One is because you've tried it and didn't like it. It's tough. I mean, it's got this weird symbolism and these, and I don't understand what the, what's going on. And you say, ah, fui, and you lay it aside. The other is, is that you've heard other people talk about the book of Revelation. And quite frankly, what they say scares the heck out of you. And I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't like that. And so we stay away from it. Well, here's the truth. It's still scripture. And all of Scripture has truth in it, has God's truth in it. That does not mean we all stay equally in all equal parts of Scripture. We don't. We are drawn to particular passages of Scripture that speak to us more, that nurture us more, that feed us more. But the danger in staying away from the Scriptures we don't like or we don't agree with is we begin to then make Scripture relate to what we value rather than allowing Scripture to transform us. My staying engaged with scriptures that I cannot understand and that I don't like allows me to remember this very simple truth. I have more to learn. It gives me an understanding to realize this is bigger than me and that the God who is revealed in the scripture is bigger than me. And I need to continue to stay in focus and in dialogue and sometimes in a wrestling match with the scriptures I'm not particularly comfortable with. Now, will I spend more time on them than the scriptures that feed me? Of course not. But to relegate the book of Revelation as something that is irrelevant, has no meaning for our life, and we have nothing to do with, is to cut out a portion of God's truth. But like art, while there's eternal truth in Revelation, how we respond to it is oftentimes impacted by what we know about it. The reason we see the book of Revelation as one of those very bizarre passages or sections or books of Scripture is because it's a very unique kind of writing style. It's called apocalyptic literature. We find it in Daniel. We find it in Ezekiel, a little bit in Isaiah. Some of the uh, passages, even where Jesus talks about, has apocalyptic understanding, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. Now, what's apocalyptic literature? Well, apocalyptic literature, most people think, is about two things. It's about telling about the end days are like, and it's a future ta- casting out of what's going to happen. I want to suggest to you sort of yes, sort of no on those. And I need you to understand a little bit about what apocalyptic literature is before we can get into understanding how to deal with the book of Revelation. So, first of all, let's take a look at this. Apocalyptic literature is speaking to the persecuted in a particular moment of history in symbolic language so as to not name specifically the persecutors. It is written to people who are being persecuted and written in code so when the persecutors come across it, they may not realize it's being written about them. And so that's why it seems so bizarre. The symbolism in the apocalyptic literature, whether it's Daniel or Revelation, doesn't matter, or other forms of apocalyptic literature, is written in code. And unless you know the code, you're not going to understand it because you're not supposed to understand it unless you know the code. Do you understand me? Okay. So that's why you come across some parts of Revelation and Daniel and you go, this is really weird. And that's the point they were hoping it would be for the persecutors. 
Apocalyptic literature offers a vision, a heavenly revelation of the truth of the situation. In other words, it's trying to say to people who are going through persecution, I want you to see where God might be in this. This is tough for you. This is a tough time for you. But I want you to see something bigger than just the tough time you're going through. I want you to see the truth of how what might be happening here larger than what you can see. It is speaking to the present time. And I don't mean this present time. I mean the present time in which it was written. I want you to think about if you were living in a time of persecution today and you were writing to the persecuted today, what would be the focus of your intent of your message? Encouragement and hope. To who? The people today. Would you be thinking about 2,000 years from now? You would not. So it, the book of Revelation is written to the church in the time in which it was written. That is not to say it doesn't have meaning for us today because it's putting the time of persecution in context to the larger plan of God and on a cosmic scale. That's why when you read in the book of Revelation about these ultimate large cosmic battles, it's sort of like blowing up the problem so you can see it better. And so they have all this, this apocalyptic battling going on with all these imageries and all of these very bizarre-looking creatures because it's blowing up the issue so you can see it from a much of cosmic difference for, rather than just a particular moment you're living in. It is offering hope and encouragement, as you said, to remain faithful to a victorious end. It's saying to folks, you're getting, getting the stuffing beneath out of you right now. But trust me, you're going to win. It's a message specific to a particular audience, and it's a message of hope and confirmation and faithfulness to God. That's what apocalyptic literature is. So apocalyptic literature, that's what all apocalyptic literature is. The book of Revelation was written around 95 AD. If you do a historical study, you'll discover that the church was being persecuted. Martyrs were being killed for the sake of their belief. People were being ostracized and driven out of society for the faith that they had in Christ. The Roman, uh, Roman Empire absolutely decided that it was the Christians that they were going to try to basically annihilate and so around 95 A.D., this revelation from God comes to John. And it is a writing to the church of that time to do exactly what apocalyptic literature does. And so you begin in the first chapter in those first three verses that Dave read to you. It's a great word of encouragement, of hope. I've got a message for you. I've got a message for you that God, God, first of all, if God's sending a message to you while you're being persecuted, that's pretty significant validation. God's taking time to talk to you. And then begins in the first three chapters to give what I think is some of the most powerful parts for us, the book of Revelation, it's the letter to the first to the seven churches. And if you'll take a look on a map, and I was going to put it up there, but you'll just trust me on this. The seven churches are sort of on a circuit, sort of a circle, coming, going through what is modern-day Turkey. And those seven churches are on a circuit, and they receive this letter. And each of the seven churches is in a different place in their spiritual journey. And what is powerful, if you just read the, you know, some people won't even touch the book of Revelation. Pick up at least the first three chapters. And read what they write about to those seven churches. 
about the spiritual situation those churches are in. And then you can also, by the way, apply it to your personal life. Like, are you still in love with your first love? Are you still putting Christ first in your life? As he said to the church at Laodicea. But you read those seven churches' message as a message of encouragement and, yes, to a certain extent, calling them out. And it would be good for you if you did nothing else this week but to read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. It will not hurt you. I'm pretty sure. Read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Just do that and begin to reflect on what it might say about the church, large church, our church, your life, and relationship with Jesus Christ. I encourage you to do that. If that were your study of the book of Revelation, you would be blessed, and the church would be blessed because we'd quit ignoring the truth that is found there. If you did that, if you also began to understand that the book of Revelation is not warning us that it's the end times. Every generation since the time of Christ has tried to say, it's the end time. The world's going to end, and some folks will even date it. Well, guess what? This is where I sort of cheat and go back to what Jesus said, which is never a bad fault, the fault of that hour and of that time. You will not know. What we're clear about, you said it in the Nicene Creed, is we do believe that Christ will come again. I do believe that. I have no concern. I have little interest about what that means. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just I already have Christ with me now, so if he wants to come back, it's sort of like, well, he's already here, so I'm good. And in funeral services where the liturgy says that we believe that Christ will come again, that's where I always give the assurance. It's not just talking about the apocalyptic end. It's talking about today in this moment of the funeral. Christ comes. The book of Revelation is about giving this message to us that Christ is faithful to us in troubling times. Are you a persecuted church? Not here, but there are places in the world where you would be. But are you also a community that needs to remember the fact that God is ultimately faithful? Have you had situations in your life where you thought it was all going to hell in a handbasket? Have you struggled through trying times that were bigger than you could ever handle on your own? The book of Revelation is written for you. Not to scare the hell out of you. And not to scare you into heaven. But to give you the confident message that God has always been faithful. Here's my biggest pet peeve about the book of Revelation. It is not the book of Revelations. Have you heard people say, oh, it's the book, of Re- have you, have, the book of Revelations? No, I've never read the book of Revelations. Never seen it. Doesn't exist to my knowledge. The book of the final book of the New Testament is not a series of revelations about God that I need to dissect and break apart and get lost in the nuance of symbolism that I can't possibly know. It is the book of Revelation, singular. And in the last two chapters, it poignantly poignantly tells you the revelation. So read the first three. 
and then go to the last two. And I'm not really telling you to skip all the book of Revelation. I'm just telling you not to get frustrated or lost in the middle. Because in Genesis, which is where the Bible begins, right? It says what? In the? It tells you how it got started. The book of Revelation, it gives you the best news of all. God wins. Thus endeth the lesson in the revelation. And that's the good news. Amen.